Jesus, we thank you for your merit. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord. I pray that as we open up your word right now, that you would speak to our hearts, prepare our hearts, Lord, minimize the distractions, and that that good seed would be implanted into our hearts. We thank you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, church. It is so good to see all of you here. Just wanted to wish all of you a happy new year. So thank you for coming. This is our first Sunday of the year. And I don't want to preach a sermon about goals or resolutions, but I do want to exposit a few verses from the Bible, which I think are very fitting for this time that we're in, New Year's. And just so you know, next week we will begin our sermon series through the book of Philippians, and we're going to be in that for at least a couple of months with the Russian and the English services going side by side. So uh, excited to preach on that as well. Uh, with all that being said, uh, I want to tell you about a story, a time when uh, we were kids and we went to Bright Park right over here. And we came, and it was a Saturday, and, you know, none of us had a basketball, but we really wanted to play basketball. And so we're just kind of sitting there, you know, with our hands in our pockets, and, and, you know, we're just trying to find a way to entertain ourselves. And then we see this guy, this older gentleman, and he's, he's shooting hoops. And so, you know, one of us uh, had the bravery to come up and ask him, saying, hey, do you happen to have another ball by any chance? And he's like, you know what? I actually do. And so he runs to his car, gets another ball out, gives us the ball, and, you know, and, and as he's given us the ball, he says this phrase. He says, we're like, thank you so much. And he's like, yeah, break a leg. <laughs> and, you know, growing up with, you know, English being my second language, I never heard that phrase before, I, and I didn't know what that phrase meant, and I knew it was something positive, right, because of the context, but yeah, I'm like, why would he want us to break a leg? Like, he said it in a very positive way, but that sounds very negative, right? Only later did I come to realize what, you know, the phrase basically means good luck, right? It actually comes from the theatrical world where actors, when they would be going up onto the, you know, the theater stage, they would wish one another in kind of an ironic, humorous way saying, hey, break a leg, right? But it was actually a, fun, uh, a funny way of just saying good luck. There's a lot of, why do I bring this up? There's a lot of different sayings that we hear all the time, right? And we understand what they mean, but we just don't know why they're phrased that way. For example, it's raining cats and dogs, right? Everybody knows what that means, but nobody actually knows where that phrase came from. In fact, there's lots of different theories. For example, that in the 1700s in England, they had, you know, uh, straw, roofs made from straw, and the cats and dogs would live in the roof because it was warm. And when it would pour heavily enough, they would actually slide down and fall off the roof. And that's why I said, oh, wow, it's raining cats and dogs. That's when you know it's really bad. But nobody really knows. And when we look at the Bible... Sometimes we come across also phrases like this that we might not understand. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, open it up please to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at just verses 13 through 16. And in the beginning of verse 13, there's this phrase. I'll read verse 13 for you. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the Greek and some of the English translations, this phrase, preparing your minds for action, what it literally means is girding the loins of your mind. Now, some of you might hear that and think, doing what to what of our mind? Okay, so... What are loins? Well, loins is the part kind of above your upper body. So this is the loin area. And gird means to put on, like to wrap around yourself like a belt, right? You'd gird yourself with a belt. So Peter is, you know, Peter is saying, he's saying, gird the loins, but of your mind. So in order to really understand this phrase, we have to go back to the ancient times and how people would walk around. They didn't have pants. They would walk around in, in tunics. It was essentially a dress, right? And as you know, it's really difficult 
well, as most, at least half of you know, it's really difficult to run, right, and to do active, physically active things in a dress, in a tunic, right, because you're limited. So what they would actually do is, is fascinating. So they, they'd pull it up, they'd pull it through their legs, they'd wrap it around, you'd tie it, and you essentially have shorts for yourself now, and it's not dangling around. And, and now you can run, you can, you can go to war, you can do physically active things because you've girded your loins, So Peter says, gird the loins, not just your physical loins, but the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying, hey, Christians, take off your slippers, put your work boots on, right? He's saying, gear up, get ready. And if you notice, if we can go to the next slide again, the first word, what's the first word, church, of verse 13? Therefore, okay? So we always have to read Scripture in context, and therefore means that there was something that came before that that we should consider, and it's very important, right? It says, if, you know, if thing A is true, therefore, right, you do something as a result of this thing A. So it's important to know what comes before the therefore. Well, verses 1 through 12, they talk about, God's great salvation for us and how the entire Trinity is involved in the salvation, how the Father saves us, Jesus, and we're sanctified by the Spirit. In fact, the salvation is so great that we read, it's in this passage, that the angels long to look into the salvation. You see, angels are not sinful creatures, the, the good angels. They did not fall into sin, so they have no idea what this concept of salvation really even is experientially. And so, and they see it. They see God performing the salvation in the history of man, and they long to look into it. It's a mystery for them. And this great mystery is unfolding and unraveling in our own life before our eyes. And Peter's saying, as a result of this magnificent salvation, therefore... Preparing your minds for action, right? So on the basis of that salvation, we ought to live in a state of readiness, ready to serve, ready to fight sin, ready to spread the good news. It's the opposite, right? Readiness is the opposite of laziness and slothfulness. It's the opposite of relaxing, right? And, and, and let's be honest, a lot of us, including me, we love our rest, right? And and let's be very honest. God created rest. Rest is a really good thing. It's not just really good. It is essential. We cannot live without rest. God created rest. He created a pattern of rest for us when he created for six days and rested on the seventh day. But It's very important to note that rest is not everything, right? There's a reason why God worked for six days but rested only for one day. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't half and half. It was six days of work, one day of rest. And it's important to keep this balance. But let's go on. For some of us, maybe for many of us, and I'm preaching to myself, rest can become an idol, right? Or let's use a more modern way of phrasing that. Rest is my right. I deserve it. I'm entitled to my rest, right? And, and, and no one and nothing better get in between me and my rest when I am done from work and I'm coming home. Get out of the way because I earned this rest and I better get it. Again, rest was created by God. And it is a way of us expressing our dependence upon God and our neediness and our limitations as creatures instead of the creator. It's important. But for many of us, rest has become a slave master, right? And God's word calls us to prepare our minds for action, to be ready in a state of readiness, to be mentally engaged and prepared And this ought to be a way of life for us as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus. And the reason for us having this kind of approach to life is because we are not at home, 
We ought to be mentally ready, prepared, prepare our minds for action because we're not at home. Verse 17 says that we are in exile. First Peter 1.17, we're in exile. Exile means you are away from your home. You're a place, a foreign place, a place where you don't actually belong ultimately. You're, you're in this temporary place, bad place. We're in exile. Philippians 3.20 says that heaven is our place of citizenship, right? Home is the place where we go to rest and relax. And exile is a place of danger and foreignness and therefore demands mental alertness. So, just some practical application for all of us right now. If, if, there was a, if there's a spectrum, right, and in the very middle, rest is a gift from God and we use it the way God intended it to be and we depend upon God through our rest and we're energized because of that, if that's down the middle, then, then feeling guilty for resting is on one side, right, and rest as an idol is on the other side, right? There are some of us, so there's some people, we feel guilty for getting sick, right? And you're like laying there in bed and you've got a crazy fever and you've got all this housework that you need to do and you feel guilty for being sick. You're like, I should be working, I should be doing this. No, no, rest. God is telling you to rest. Maybe he's forcing you to rest by getting you sick, right? And then there's some of us where rest is my right. I've, I have to watch that show every single day after work. I've got this pattern, this cycle. I need it, and if I don't get it, I'm very unhappy. I have to get my gaming in. I need to binge on my phone. Maybe I need to drink something every day, or else I'm in a really, really bad mood. The question is, do I prepare my mind for action? Key word here is action. Or am I always looking for an opportunity to stop taking action? Right? I go to work because I have to, but this entire time my mind is just thinking about when am I going to be able to stop taking action? Right? Is that what our mind is preoccupied with most of the time? Well, this is, goes against what the Word of God tells us to do. In my experience, we as people, we constantly crave rest when there's something wrong going on in our life, right? And oftentimes, it's, it's a reflection of something wrong in my relationship with God. See, <clears throat> again, there are circumstances where we can't change something about our life, and, and, and it is just horrible and exhausting, and of course, you're going to crave rest. For example, a sick child, right? My, our second daughter from I don't know, month three to month seven, she would scream bloody murder every single night. And it doesn't matter what you did to her. It doesn't matter how you held her, how you rocked her. It didn't matter what medicine you give her. She just screams at the top of her lungs. We were very tired in that season. We were very sleep deprived. And I'll be honest, I was craving rest. Like any time I could take a little power nap, any time I could sleep in just a little bit more, I would because those were our circumstances. But, but then there's unhealthy reasons of why we crave rest. The first reason is maybe we're working too hard. Now, as a person who loves to work and believes in hard work, that just sounds wrong to me when, even when I say it, right? But here's the reality. It is possible to work too hard. Why? Maybe our spending habits are not healthy, and we need to work more in order to support those unhealthy spending habits, right? That's a sin. Maybe we have got sinful investing habits, and we're working too hard to support those investing habits. Well, that's also a sin, and, and no wonder we're craving rest, right? If all we're doing is work, 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 of course we're going to crave rest. You know, there's seasons in life, especially mom's Sometimes it's okay for the house to be dirty, 
right? It's okay for you to go to sleep not having done all the dishes. Sometimes it's okay. Don't, don't kill your soul over some sort of false standard that somebody told you some when you don't even remember who told you, but that's just how it has to be. And so you're work, working, 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 but your soul is suffering as a result of it. Two, sometimes we crave rest in a healthy ways when we have things that are draining our energy, right? Uh, they're making us tired. Uh, maybe we have a regular job uh, that doesn't make us super tired, but then we have things in our life that are draining the rest of our energy. It could be unhealthy eating. Uh, that's going to destroy our energy. Lack of exercise, that's going to destroy our energy, right? Staying up late, just being on our phone, doom scrolling, TV. The, and, and it's funny because these things to me, to us, it feels like rest in the moment, right? Like I'm going to get a little bit of rest. I'm going to get a little bit of rest and, and, and just kind of stop thinking. But when we overindulge in those things, good, I think there's room for them. But when we overindulge, it actually destroys our long-term energy. And therefore, we're not able to prepare our minds for action, right? Alcohol can feel like rest, but all it does is it just makes you more tired, sluggish in the long run. And the third reason, unhealthy reason why we might crave rest, is we actually have spiritual problems that are unresolved, undealt with. You see, oftentimes, instead of us bringing our spiritual problems to God and figuring it out with Him, what we do is we, we go to all these other cheap pleasures because we're already unhappy, because our relationship with God is bad. So what we do is we go to these other cheap pleasures as like a quick fix in order to have at least some kind of happiness, right? That, that's our logic. We might not think that way, but that's our subconscious logic. Well, at least I'll have something, you know, just a, a, little, a little blankie with a little pacifier. And, and you know, well, yeah, I, I don't have a good relationship with God, but at least I have something to get me through the day. We crave rest in an unhealthy way when we have unresolved spiritual problems. So all of these things, these three things, I'm sure there's more, working too hard, something draining our energy, all these things, they prevent us from obeying, from obeying the command of preparing our minds for action. So in light of this great salvation, we have to prepare our minds for action, and we should also look at what the Word of God says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. The Bible clearly and emphatically calls us as Christians to be sober-minded. And the most obvious application of this is alcohol and drugs, right? The Bible is very clear that, that getting drunk is a sin. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. That's clear. That's the easy one. But physical substances are not the only things that can impair our thinking. Anything that impairs our understanding and our functioning in this world should be cast aside. Anything that negatively impacts my thinking and my patterns of thinking doesn't allow me to be sober-minded. And this is like very obvious with kids, right? Uh, my four-year-old daughter. If I show her, this is, this is hilarious. If I show her, I make an agreement with her, hey, she wants cartoons. Okay, I'll give you five minutes of cartoons. We have a little timer. We set it, and we let her watch, we let her watch the cartoon, right? Five minutes runs up. We agree. She turns off the TV. She's happy, and she goes along with her day, right? And if she asks cartoons, and sometimes we'll give her, like, we're, we're just overwhelmed. We're exhausted. So we give her a whole hour just to distract her, right? And when we go to turn the TV off, because she won't turn it off after an hour, when we turn it off, parents, right, aunts, uncles, you know what happens. You get a fit. You, you the blow up, right? They're, they're, they're crying. They're miserable. You're like, you got less <laughs> of the good stuff, and you were happier when you got less than when you got a lot of that stuff, right? Like, what happened? It's not being sober-minded, Right? Um, and again, I'm not condemning showing cartoons to kids and we're parents. We, we understand what it's like. This is not my point. My point is that even non-physical things 
can still temporarily impair our thinking and our emotions. And maybe you've noticed this with yourself, spending too much time on your phone. Do you feel good and energized after, or do you feel horrible? TV, gaming, right? All of a sudden, maybe you're irritable. You've got a shorter fuse. You're not being self-controlled. That's not what the Bible would call as sober-minded. But what's worse is even the long-term effects, right? We watch a show where worldly things are constantly being exalted. All of a sudden, a few weeks later, we find ourselves craving and desiring those things. Wait, what happened? And we don't even notice it because it's so subtle. You see, the sober-minded person, one, they, they understand reality correctly. That's what it means to be sober-minded. You understand what you're looking at. And two, the sober-minded person has self-control, right? They, they, don't, they don't let their desires rule over them. And so, the practical application of this text is that we should cast aside all in our lives that we see do not allow us to be sober-minded. And church... No one's going to come after you. No one's going to ask you. No one's going to check. It's just between me and God. What prevents me from being sober-minded? What distorts my reality? What lowers my self-control in this world? We're called to this. We're called to prepare our minds for action. We're called to be sober-minded. And with all of this, it's leading up to something. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, we're not called to be sober-minded and prepare our minds for action just for the sake of being sober-minded and prepare our minds for action, although that's a good thing. Being sober-minded and ready is the state that we must be in, and when we are in that state, there's an action that we ought to take, and that action is setting our hope fully on something. It's like we're not trying to grow our muscles for the sake of just growing our muscles. We're growing our muscles so that we can go and use those muscles to do something that we wouldn't be able to do had we not had those muscles, right, for work or something like that, where you have to lift heavy weights, our focus and our goal is not ultimately sober-mindedness or self-control. That sober-mindedness, it gets directed somewhere. Namely, our focus should be fully hoping in the grace, in the grace that Jesus will bring to us when he comes back for us. That's where we should direct our mental energies. The revelation of Jesus Christ here in verse 13 is the second coming of Christ. One day he will return. Church, maybe you know this, but maybe your heart has forgotten this fact. And I'm here just to remind all of us Jesus is coming back. More sure than the sunrise tomorrow, Jesus will be back. He will come back, whether it's tomorrow or in a 1,000 or 10,000 years. It doesn't matter in the cosmic timeline. Jesus is coming back soon. And he will take us, his beloved bride, back home. As we read Philippians 3.21, one day Jesus will transform our lowly body, which is prone to sickness, disease, weakness, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body when he comes back. One day we will see Christ's eternal glory and God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. First Peter 5, 10. He, Jesus, when he comes back, he will right every wrong, every, one, every single effect of sin will be undone. The curse will be completely reversed, church, completely. Every single negative thing that we experience here on earth will be reversed with the appearance of Jesus. Negativity will cease to be exist, will cease to exist. The only thing that will be left of negativity is just a distant memory when you wake up from a nightmare that fades within a few minutes. Like, whew, 
Wow, that was just a bad dream. That's all. That's all there's going to be left of negativity when Jesus comes back. For the real Christian, the one who has been born from above, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the grace that he will bring to me ought to be my greatest hope. The thing that I put all of my hope on. It is the culmination of all that he or she desires. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In the depths of one's heart, the true Christian cannot wait for the day to see Jesus face to face. No longer through just words, no longer through filter, filters or, or barriers, but directly, face to face. And here's what's fascinating. God cares about what we hope in. Do you ever think about it that way? Like, we go out throughout the day hoping in things, right? Whatever it is, we, we, we always have hope. We always have some kind of hope. And God cares about what we hope in. And we're told to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not mostly, not 50-50, hey, balance it out here on earth, somewhere in heaven, right? But fully, completely. Why does God care? First of all, the benefit of setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is that means that hope can never be shattered. It can never be broken. It can never be destroyed or taken away, right? That's the, that's the amazing part. Everything else, right? Good health, a happy family life, whatever it is, retirement, all those things can come crumbling down in one day. But nothing can stop Jesus bringing us that grace at his revelation. So, but why does, Jesus, why does God care what we hope in you know why? Because what we hope in exposes and shows and indicates what our hearts truly desire but do not have. I'm going to say that again. What we hope in shows us what we truly desire but do not have. So personal application, just ask yourself this question right now. What is my heart hoping in? Like right now, today, when I woke up, when I went to, into the shower, what, what am I hoping for? What's the pattern of, of what, is, what is it that I'm hoping for in my day-to-day in the season of life? What would leave me completely devastated if it didn't happen or if it happened, right? What am I desiring most? Maybe it's something good or maybe it's just avoiding something bad. What would leave me happy even if all the other things went wrong. Is that hope, the grace that Jesus will bring to us when he comes back? Or is it something else? And I'll be honest, my hope is constantly wavering from the revelation of Jesus Christ. My hope is always getting spread across things of this world all the time, and you've got to refocus and realign it back to the grace that Jesus will bring one day. Maybe it's something in your career. Maybe it's some, your family situation that you're hoping about or your possessions or accomplishments, your social status. What am I truly hoping for? Answer that question honestly in your own heart because our hopes reveal what we truly desire. You see, God is not interested in merely external obedience. Well, you went to church, you read your Bible, you served at church, you went to community group, you did all these things right, check, 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 check. Hey, you're great. You're doing awesome. God doesn't care. It's not even believing the right things. It's not just that. It's that, but more importantly, God wants our heart. God looks at what we are desiring. God wants us to actually desire him, church. To want to be with him. Everything else doesn't matter if we don't actually love him. 
If we don't actually seek him and want to be with him, God sees right through everything. We can't fool him. He doesn't care about everything else. If our heart is not knit to him. And if this is something maybe you've never had in your heart, or you don't remember the last time that you've had a real desire for God in your heart, for his coming, for his eternal presence, then cry out to God. Just cry out to him. Just have a very honest conversation with him. Tell him the truth. Because he already knows exactly how your heart feels even before you are able to realize or verbalize it. Ask him to help you. Ask him to open your eyes to his beauty and his goodness and that you would learn to truly desire and set your hope fully on God and not something of this world. In fact, this is probably why we are called to be sober-minded because when we are not sober, we are out of touch with reality and we stop hoping in God. It's very interesting because even Jesus, when he's speaking of his second coming, he urges us to be sober-minded. So there's a pattern here. Luke 21, verse 34, speaking of the day of when he will come back, Jesus says, but watch yourselves for fear that your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, that's when he comes back, come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's saying, be careful. Be sober-minded. Do not be weighed down by the cares of this life and be surprised by when I come back. No, I want you to desire me. I want you to expect, expect me when I arrive. The unsober mind, the unprepared mind, is not able to hope in the grace that Jesus will bring at his arrival. The unsober mind forgets about reality and is content with this sub-reality that we have. It forgets that life will not keep on going forever and ever and ever the way that it is going, the way that it feels that it is going right now. It forgets that one day God will return and will radically shift everything around. He will put everything into order. So church, let us prepare our minds for action. Let us be sober-minded and let us set our hope fully on the grace that Jesus will bring when he returns. Verse 14, going on, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before we came to God, we lived in darkness and ignorance. We didn't know about the goodness of God. We didn't know about the hope of God, the life and the joy and the freedom from sin, the freedom from corruption, freedom from vanity. We didn't know any of those things. That was our former ignorance. But now that our eyes have been opened, now that we have been enlightened, we are commanded to not conform to those passions. Conform comes from Latin, two words, con, which means with, and form means image or likeness. Do not be with likeness. Do not look like those things. Be different from your passions. We know better. That's what Peter is saying. You know better. Your eyes are opened. But, but, you know, here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible doesn't just come in and just give us a list of things to not do. Like, don't do this. The Bible, not only does it say, do not do this, and it does say that very clearly. Do not do this. But it also has an alternative. It says, do this instead. Notice it says, do not be conformed. And then verse 15 but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So don't be conformed to your passions. Instead, be holy in all of your conduct. You see, if I tell you right now, let's just try this. If I tell you, don't think of a pink cat, what are you thinking about? Let's be honest. The pink cat, right? Now, if I tell you, Think of a remote island somewhere 
in the tropic, tropical area, maybe the Caribbeans, and you see this big, beautiful, light blue ocean, and you're right there on the beach, the soft, warm sand between your toes, the waves just quietly splashing on the shore, the palm trees just gently rustling from the sea breeze, and sitting next to you is that pink cat that you totally forgot about, right? Do you notice how that works, right? If you think, don't think of the pink cat, don't think of the pink cat, all you're gonna think about is the pink cat. But if you turn your attention elsewhere, if you don't just remove, but you actually replace, it takes the place of it, you will be able to remove successfully, right? The way to stop thinking about something is to turn our attention to something else. And in the Bible, we oftentimes see this pattern of removing and replacing, right, when it comes to personal change. And that's the, actually the message of today. The title of today's message is, it's personal change God's way. You see, it's not enough to just remove, but we must also replace. You don't just pull the weed out in a plot of land, but you actually have to plant good seed as well, right? Matthew 12, verse 43, very interesting passage. Jesus gives a parable. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house. It's talking about the person from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house, notice this, empty, sweat, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. His point, it's not enough to just have the old, the bad leaf to remove it, but we must have the Holy Spirit, right, who now lives within our house so that no one can come back and try to live in us anymore. You see, if you just, you're like, okay, I need to get rid of my old clothes. It's, it's just, it's bad, I need to get rid of it. If you just get rid of it, but you never buy new clothing, what are you gonna do? Within a few minutes, you're gonna get cold, you're gonna get embarrassed, and you're gonna just resort back to what you have, right? That old clothing, you're gonna take it out of the trash and you're gonna put it back on because you have nothing else that you've replaced it with. And so it's important to not just focus on stopping bad behaviors and, and thoughts, but it's important to replace them with holy behaviors and thoughts. And there's a little bit more that I'm gonna explain in a second, but I'll give you some very practical examples straight from scripture. Ephesians 4, if you want, open up your Bible. We're gonna be here for the rest of this message in a couple of minutes here. Ephesians chapter four, verse 25. Paul writes, he says, having put away falsehood, he continues, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. So it's not enough to just stop saying lies. You actually need to start saying truth, right? It's like, I'm not going to lie anymore. No, no, I need to actually speak truth. I need to replace one action with another and start doing it, right? Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, right? And it doesn't stop with labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, right? He's saying, don't steal, instead work hard, work honestly, and share. And share is literally the complete opposite of stealing, right? It's like stealing from yourself, right? You're giving away something for free to others which they didn't earn. And you ought to replace stealing with sharing. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of speaking corrupting talk, we're not told to be just silent, we're told to speak words that give grace to those who hear, that build other people up instead of tearing them down. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we ought to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. We ought to uproot it and instead 
take its place with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another. And here's the key, church. This is the last point. Notice it says, how should we forgive one another? Look at the text, verse 32. How should we forgive one another? Someone shout it out, please. As Christ forgave you. Thank you. As Christ forgave you. You see, this is the key here. Church, do not miss this. This this is literally the key. We're not just supposed to replace the bad with the good. That's good. We should do that. But that's not enough. Because our good behaviors, the good that we ought to replace the bad with, does not originate within our own selves. That's the key. Because I'm sure there are some of you sitting here thinking, well, I've tried that, Peter. I've, 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 I've tried, I've honestly tried to replace the bad with actual good, and it just didn't work. Yes, I agree. And it won't work because we are not meant to be the source of that goodness. This is the key. We are not meant to be the source, the self-generating source of that goodness that we ought to replace the bad things with. We cannot. If we can go to our last slide. We are supposed to put away anger and forgive one another, not because we are good people, and because we got to do better and we're better than that, but because of how God in Christ forgave me. Looking to God, we do good. This is the essence right here. Looking to Jesus as our example, we do good to other people. You see, the thief, he doesn't just stop stealing. The assumption here, the thief is a Christian, right? Paul isn't just giving good advice to the whole world how to have a better society. He's speaking to Christians. He says, if you're a thief, you need to stop stealing and you need to start sharing. You know why? Because the thief looks at the generosity of God in the gospel by giving us all that he ever had, his own son, Jesus Christ, to save that thief's soul. And when the thief looks at God's generosity and he is overwhelmed by the graciousness of God, that sharing this little thing that I worked so hard for doesn't seem like such a big deal anymore. God's given me so much more. He's given me so much more than, you know, 10% of my income, 20%, 30% of my income, whatever it is, God has given me infinitely more. You see, if we do not find the good from God, it is only a matter of time until the old will come back. The weeds will grow. You remember the parable of the unclean spirit, right? The parable leaves the person, and notice, when it comes back to the person, notice it wasn't cast out, it leaves. How did it find the house? What state was the house in, church? Was it messy? No. It says that it was empty, it was swept, it was put in order. It was nice and clean. It was good, right? So there's a real improvement for the person. When the unclean spirit left for some time, the question is not whether self-help tactics work. They work. They absolutely work without God. The question is not whether they can change us. The question is, you see, change, it's easy keeping that change permanently. A complete transformation of the core. That is what is impossible apart from God. We need to remove the bad and we need to replace it with not just good, but good that comes from God. And that's why we see the same exact pattern here in 1 Peter 1. That's why in verse 15 he says, but as he who called you is holy... Because of that, because the one who called you is holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. Notice, we're getting the good from God. Notice, Peter doesn't just say, don't be conformed to your former passions. Instead, be holy. No. He says, because the one who called you is holy, the one who saved you, the one who washed you, the one who made you new, 
the one who gave you new life, the one who forgave you, the one who has promised you an inheritance in heaven, because that one, because he's holy, you also be holy in all that you do. Paul has the same thing. Put off the bad, put on the good that we find from God. By the way, I think maybe oftentimes we cringe at this word of holiness because we, you know, we might imagine some super religious, judgy, passive-aggressive person, but that's not what the Bible means by holy. Holy means being conformed to the image of Jesus. And the holier we are, the more we look like Jesus. That's it. And Jesus was not passive-aggressive. Jesus was not judgy. Trust me. Just want to share one last very, very practical example of putting off and putting on. Removing, replacing, it's so powerful. Flip to Ephesians 5, just one chapter over. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 4. Actually, yeah, let's do 3 through 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Again, Ephesians 5 is coming right after Ephesians 4. This is Paul just continuing the same exact thought he had in Ephesians 4. Remove, replace, put off, put on. And it's very interesting that Paul lumps, notice what he lumps in verse 3, if we could go back. He lumps sexual immorality with covetousness. It's like, why? Why put those two together? How do those have anything to do with one another? How does sexual sin relate to loving stuff and money and status? Because you could say that both of them are simply a form of lust, right? In one case, you are lusting after a person. In the other, you are lusting after an object or an idea. But at its root, it is lust, a strong craving, a strong desire for something or someone. And what the Word of God says is we must put that lust off. And notice what the new that we must put on. Let's read again. This time I'm going to read three through five because it's all talking about the same thing. But sexual morality must, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolishness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that he that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So what's the solution, church? What must we put on to deal with all of these things? Can someone shout it out? Thanksgiving. Yes, amen. You see, thanksgiving is sandwiched right there in between all of it. It's, it's the gem, right? It, it's sitting there. All of these things ought to be replaced with thanksgiving. Sexual lust, lust for money, for stuff, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, all of it must be uprooted and instead be replaced with thanksgiving, with gratitude towards God. As I call the band up, you see, I want to say that Whenever we are lusting for someone or something, we are not being thankful. We are not being thankful. We are not. That is the nature of our heart, right? You see, lust and gratitude are mutually incompatible. They cannot be in the same room together. They cannot live in, the, in one heart at the same time. They can't. They don't mix. One always displaces the other. It's like oil and water, right? You can pour juice into water and it'll mix, no problem. But if you pour water into oil, it will push the oil out. Whenever we are lusting, 
we are not being thankful to God. It's the complete opposite of thankfulness. It's saying, I don't have enough. But when we are thankful, we can't lust. We can't desire other things, especially things that are forbidden, because our heart is pouring out in gratitude towards God. So try this next time. Whenever you feel the lust, whether it be covetousness or sexual lust or any kind of lust, in your heart, that craving, start thanking God. Just start thanking God for all that you have, for the people in your life, for all that he has already given you. And thankfulness, again, here's the key, it is inherently God-centered. Because we're looking up to God and we're thanking him for all that he has given us. If you're lusting after a new car, thank God for the car you already have. If you're lusting for, I don't know, a better house, thank God for the house you already live in, right? I'm not saying it's wrong to get a new house. I'm talking about lusting after a new house, lusting after another person, right? Thankfulness to God destroys lust like light destroys darkness. And true personal change always involves replacing the old and the bad with the good and the new. And that good is always rooted in the gospel, in what God has already done for us, the generosity of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, what he has already given to us. That's why if you haven't experienced that grace and that forgiveness of God yet, you can't experience real change. You can experience change, but not real change at the core of your heart. So come to him, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. That's the first step. He gave his life for you to secure your eternity with him. And he now gives us the Holy Spirit here and now who lives in us, who guides us, who transforms us. And today during communion, that's what we're going to be doing, is remembering all that Jesus has already done for me, all that he has given me, remembering the generosity of Jesus and of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is where the key of transformation is hidden. So in summary, we talked about preparing our minds for action, being ready, being sober-minded for the sake of fully setting our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 14 and 15 and 16, we talked about this biblical idea of personal change, personal change God's way of removing the old, replacing it with good, which is rooted in the gospel. Let's stand. I'm going to give you a minute of response time. We'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you have already done. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your gift of grace. Thank you for the grace that you will bring, the fullness of that grace. Lord, help us set our hope fully on that, not the things of this world. Help us be sober-minded, prepare our minds for action. Lord, and help us remove and put to death which is earthly in us and replace it with the good, the good seed from you, Lord, looking to you, loving you with hearts full of gratitude. Lord, and I pray for everyone who hasn't trusted in you yet that they would so. In the beginning of this new year, Lord, we pray this all in the precious, precious name of Jesus. Amen.